Good morning. Morning. Great to see you. For those of you new here, my name's I'm another Matthew. This is the Church of the Matthews. There are many of us, and I'm one of them. I've just been. Uh, we're one church. We meet in two locations here and up at Alder Road, and I've just been speaking up there, and uh, then come down here to speak here. Great to come in at the end of the worship and sense God's presence here, as uh, also we were experiencing up at Alder Road. Um, can you put the next slide up, Scarlett? Who knows what this this is? There's a flicker recognition there, Mark. Mm, not quite. It's the Dorset coat of arms. Oh, come on, come on. The the uh, dragons. I, th- I think they, I think they might technically be wyverns rather than dragons or something or, of Wessex and the lions. I think of Dorchester and Wareham and and then the motto, who's who's a feared, which apparently was suggested by the novelist Thomas Hardy, is the motto of Dorset, who's a feared. And it's a bit of a strange motto because it could be heard as who's afraid, who's feeling nervous, who's a little bit anxious, who's terrified. And uh, some people might say, well, yes, I am. I've seen a couple of interesting examples of that this week uh, on Friday. Nathaniel, I think you were having the time of your life, weren't you, at the university, as Nathaniel heads up the media team there, and as somebody was out for a jog wearing a weighted vest, which sparked a major security incident, people thinking it was a, a suicide bomber, and they locked the university down for 14 minutes, and Nathaniel had the world's media on the phone to him asking what was going on. But there's a kind of fearfulness at the gym I, was at, I, I go to. We've got a bunch of vests like that. And I say yes, and I said to the guys, hey, should we all put our vests on and go out into Paul bus station and see if we can get the whole of Paul shut down? <laughs> but we resisted the temptation. Uh, so, but people are fearful. Um, um, Prisca, Alder Road, she was telling me that in her workplace this week, they've got a full-time counsellor, and the counsellor was, was busy morning through to the end of the day, seeing people who are anxious, fearful because of what's happening in the world, anxious that World War III is about to start. So people, maybe that's not you, maybe you think that's a bit strange or comical, but maybe you are one of those people who's feeling actually fearful, and so the motto, who's, who's a feared, you might think, yeah, I am a feared. But I think actually, of course, the way that motto is meant to be read, meant to be understood, is who's a feared, who's afraid? Not us. We're Dorset. We're not, we can take on the world with our fudge and our pasties. It's, a, it's, it's, been, it's been a bit, who's afraid? Bring it on. That's, of course, what the motto is meant to imply rather than who's afraid? Who's afraid? Now, this morning I'm starting a series in the letter of First Peter, and First Peter is a bit, of, bit like It's a who's afraid kind of letter. Who's afraid? Because there's some frightening stuff that is going on for those who are going to read this letter that the Apostle Peter is writing. But Peter's not looking to reinforce their fears. Actually, what he's wanting to do is to reinforce their courage. He's wanting to say to them, who's afraid? Bring it on. We can do this. And between now and Easter, we're planning to be in this letter of 1 Peter. And my prayer is that it would strengthen us and encourage us and... It'll help us to learn better what it means to be faithful in exile. That's our title for the series. And it would teach us not to be afeared. So we're going to read the first couple of verses of 1 Peter. The verses appear on the screen. If you want to have a Bible in front of you, of course, you're very welcome to do that as well. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Bournemouth, Christchurch, and Paul, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Lord, we pray that we would um, suck the meat out of the bones of this letter. I pray, Lord, that as we look at it today and as we begin to unpack it, I pray that you'd help us to receive grace and a peace in abundance. I pray, Lord, that over these weeks as we uh, delve into this letter that you would put courage in our hearts that, yeah, we would say, who's afeard that we'd be full of confidence in God, security in who we are as your people? So I pray you'd help us do that this morning, King Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Right. Let's get to grips with this letter. First of all, who is Peter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing the letter. Who is Peter? Well, Peter, of course, is one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus. And the first time we meet Peter, actually he's the first disciple that Jesus chooses, is when Peter is walking along by the sea, uh, by the lake shore, and he sees Peter and his brother and some other people fishing, and Peter says to them, uh, Jesus says to them, Leave your nets, leave your boats, stop fishing for fish, come and be fishers of men, be my disciples. And of the 12 disciples that Jesus calls, Peter is far and away the one that we know most about. There are more stories about him in the Bible than any other of the disciples. I wonder actually how we would do, this is a good Sunday school question, who can name the 12 disciples? Are you not volunteering, Matthew? There's a reluctance. Twelve disciples. Some of them we know practically nothing about. So we're given a list of the twelve. There's Simon, there's Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, also known as Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Some of them we hear nothing about other than in the places where they're listed as being disciples. We, who was Thaddeus? What did he do? What was he like? We know nothing about him, but... On almost every page of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read something about Peter. And the book of Acts, which tells the story of the first 30 years of the church, Peter's a major character in that book. And then there are two letters which Peter wrote, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, which bear Peter's name and are in the Bible. So we know far more about Peter than we do about any of the other of the 12. And as we read about Peter, we see he's a very human character. And I think he's easy to relate to because he just seems so human. Because some of the stories you read, he comes across as brave. Other times he's cowardly. Sometimes he's wise. Sometimes he acts foolishly. Sometimes he's cautious. Often he's incredibly enthusiastic. He tends to say what he wants to say without thinking about what he's going to say. And that's, this means that often he's set up as a kind of the fool guy in the gospel stories. He's the one that if anybody's going to put their foot in it, it's going to be Peter. And the gospel writers aren't embarrassed to show Peter putting his foot in it. There's even an irony in his name. He was born Simon, son of John. That's who he was, Simon, son of John. But when Jesus meets him, Jesus says to him, you're not going to be Simon anymore. You're going to be Cephas, which is in the Aramaic language, or Peter in the Greek language, both of which mean rock. And really what, Peter's doing, uh, what Jesus is doing here is saying to, to Simon, you're not going to be Simon anymore. You're going to be Peter. You're going to be Rocky. You're my mate, Rocky. 
And there's a bit of an irony about the name because Peter was, in many ways, he was a rock. But often, a lot of the time, he was also just a bit rocky. And you see that in the things he did, the things he said, the way that he acted. Think of some of the well-known stories where Peter really messes things up. When Jesus, one of these amazing stories, the disciples were out on the water, and uh, suddenly they see Jesus walking on the water towards them. Extraordinary story. But it tells us that Peter jumped out of the boat and started to walk towards Jesus. And of course, he sinks. And we can all laugh, and we can imagine the other 11 disciples saying, ah, there's Peter getting wet again. But of course, Peter was the one who actually got out of the boat and tried to walk towards Jesus. He was the one who said, I'm going to give this a go. Jesus is walking on water. I'm going to try and walk on water too. Think about the story of the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. It's a story you probably ought to think about a lot more than we, we do. It's an amazing story. Jesus goes up a mountain. He takes Peter with him and James and John. Of the 12, it's these three who are the kind of the inner circle that Jesus seems to give most time to. And they go up the mountain and Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah somehow appear with Jesus on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. He no longer appears just as human, but he appears as he is, as divine, bright, shining, blinding. It's a moment of incredible mystery and awe and power. And then we have Peter kind of perking up, putting his hand up and saying, Lord, it's so good that I'm here. I'm going to build a little hut for you and for Moses and Elijah. And it's like, what is Peter thinking? What's he doing? What on earth is he saying? This is Jesus suddenly revealed as God, and he's there talking with Moses and Elijah, these great pivotal figures in the story of what God has done on the earth, these great leaders. Why does Peter think that he needs to build a little shed for them to be looked after in? It's just a, Peter, think before you speak. Or, the terrible moment, the bleak moment, the bitter moment of Jesus' arrest when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and guards are sent to arrest him. And of course, it's just such a tragic story because it revolves around betrayal and treachery as Judas, one of the 12, sells Jesus for money, hands him over. But even in that moment of such bitterness and such pain and sorrow, there's actually what is almost a comedic moment because it tells us that Peter took out a sword and he chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And it's kind of Mr. Bean security detail. Because you think, Peter, if you're going to do it, mate, if you're going to stand up for Jesus, if you're going to get a sword out and do something, at least kill somebody and at least kill one of the soldiers. And instead he flays around and he chops off a servant's ear. It's like, oh, it's just everything about it is wrong. And I think about when Jesus then arrested and taken to be tried, and Peter is the one who said, I'll never deny you, I'll never deny you, I'll never deny you. Then, of course, when, G- when Peter is asked, do you know Jesus? He denies Jesus. But on the other hand, Peter's the one of all the disciples who actually tries to get to the place where Jesus is being tried. He's the one who tries to get in. He tries to get into the courtyard where Jesus is being held, and so there's this kind of conflict in him. In his fear, he denies Jesus, but also he wants to be close to Jesus. And that's, that's Peter through and through. He, he wants to be there. He wants to do the right thing. But again and again, he seems to get it wrong. Think about the story after Jesus 
is raised to new life. Jesus appears to Mary and he says, Mary, I'm not dead, I'm alive. Go and tell my brothers. And Mary goes and tells the disciples. And it says that Peter and John set out running for the tomb. And again, it's kind of comedic because Peter is the one who wants to get to the tomb first. What is going on? What's happening? But it says that John got there before him. Obviously, Peter just wasn't as in good shape as John was. And John outran him. But when they get to the tomb, John is standing at the entrance of the tomb, kind of peering in. But Peter's the one who actually goes in. He's the enthusiast. Then sometime after, Jesus appears on a shore as the disciples have gone back to their boats and they're fishing again and says, calls out to the disciples and they turn the boat towards him. But Peter jumps out of the boat in his eagerness to rush towards Jesus. And so these stories we see of Peter, we see someone who in many ways is kind of the buffoon. He gets portrayed again and again as the, as the laughing stock of the disciples. He's the one who says something when all the rest of them are sensibly keeping their mouths shut. He's the one who puts his foot right in it rather than holding back. But he's also the biggest enthusiast for Jesus. And now here, 30 years later, he introduces himself as Peter, an apostle. And at this point, Peter has become truly rock-like. He is the great leader of the first church. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples in a room in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God poured out of them, and they go out into the streets, and Peter is the one who stands up and proclaims who Jesus is, what he has done, and 3,000 people respond and are baptized. Rocky becomes a rock. And he has a ministry that then crosses continents and touches the lives of thousands of people. And so I find Peter's life and ministry a great example and a great inspiration. He's a great example and a great inspiration because he's the guy who so often got it wrong. And yet God uses him so mightily. And as we begin 2020, as we get into this year, I'd say let's, let's be enthusiasts for Jesus. You might look back over the last year or over your life and think, man, I've messed it up so many times. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I've put my foot in stuff I shouldn't have put it in. I've just messed up again and again. But be an enthusiast for Jesus. Peter messed it up again and again, but he was an enthusiast. He loved Jesus, and then Jesus established him as an apostle. Rocky became a rock. That's Peter. Second thing is, who is Peter writing to? He says he's writing to God's elect exiles scattered or in the ESV translation of the Bible it says elect exiles of the dispersion and where these people are is easy to work out because Peter tells us he gives us a list of provinces and this is a region that we would think of today as Turkey and uh, in biblical terms sort of as Asia Minor and we think that the letter of Peter was probably written about 63 AD and Peter was in Rome uh, from something he says at the end of the letter, we think that's the case. And so Peter is writing from the heart of empire, from Rome, to churches at its fringes. And he's writing this letter th- uh, at, at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts tells the, the story of the first 30 years of the church, how it expands from Jerusalem and spreads out throughout the Roman Empire. And so this is after that period, and extraordinary things have happened in those 30 years. Churches have been started across the empire, but Christians are still very much a minority, and they're experiencing increasing hostility. And so Peter writes to the believers in this 
area of Asia Minor, and he describes them as exiles or as aliens or foreigners. Now, the thing is, they're actually in their hometowns. They actually come from Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. This is where they've been born and raised. But he describes them as exiles, aliens, foreigners. And that's because their faith in Jesus has driven something of a wedge between them and their native communities. They're they're beginning to experience a sense of exile in all kinds of areas of life because following Jesus had cost them. Following Jesus was costing them something. And this is actually a really good question to ask ourselves. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, what did you have to give up to follow Jesus? What's following Jesus cost you? Because it's meant to cost us something. And Peter's assumption here is that these believers have paid a price. They've given some things up in order to follow Jesus. And that's creating for them a sense of exile, even in their hometowns. For some of them, it means in the workplace, they're experiencing a sense of exile because their relationship with their bosses isn't what it once, once was. For some of them, this is happening in their marriages, that one married partner has become a Christian, the other hasn't, and that's creating marital tensions. And so they started to feel like strangers in their own land. And it's these challenges that Peter's letter addresses. And he says, don't be afraid. Who's afraid? Don't be afraid. Because it can be, it is hard to live in exile, if, as some of you have done. If you leave your native country, your native culture, and move to a different part of the world, even if you choose to do that, there's still a cost learning to understand a different place, the strange habits and practices that people have in this place, the, the things that are done differently here from how they were done back home. Living in exile is always challenging. My daughter Susie went back to university on Tuesday, and I spoke to her on Thursday, and she said that all the girls in her flat had been crying because they were all feeling homesick, because they'd been back at home over Christmas and they'd known the coziness and the comfort of home and food had been provided and laundry had been done and now they've gone back to university and they're flat and mum isn't there to look after them anymore and having to cook for themselves and think about having to work again and they're all crying and homesick. <laughs> they're in exile at university. But exile is always challenging. It's always different. Even if you choose exile, it's hard. And so the question is, why would, why would anyone choose the way of exile? Why would you give anything up? Why pay the cost? What have these believers experienced that makes the cost they're paying worthwhile? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask of ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus, why have you, what have you given up? And why did you pay that cost? If you're not a follower of Jesus, why would you pay the cost of following Jesus? I want you to follow Jesus, but why would you pay that cost? Why would you do this? Now, Peter is writing to people who are Gentiles, non-Jews, but he, of course, is a, a Jewish man, and his language throughout this letter reflects his Jewish history. And for the Jews, for the people of Israel, exile was a complete and utter disaster. It's the ultimate curse. And as we read the story of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, we see that actually they came to that place of exile because the people of Israel 
kept rebelling against God and not following his way. In the end, they were so weakened and defeated that they were carried off into exile in a foreign land. They were taken to Babylon, and that was the ultimate sign of defeat and disgrace and disaster. To, to leave the promised land, to be taken from Israel, was the ultimate sign of curse. But as Peter writes to these exiles, he doesn't seem to see that as a sign of curse. Rather, he sees it as a sign of blessing. Actually, this is what they have been chosen for. You've been chosen for exile. And the reason that Peter's thinking has been completely turned around is because the death and resurrection of Jesus has turned everything inside out. For the people of Israel, being away from the promised land was a disaster because that's the land that God had given them and that's where God's presence was understood to be. Where is God? He is here in this particular part of land and he's especially present in the temple where we go to worship him and he's most powerfully present in the holy of holy, holies, the most holy place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where God is. And so if we are taken away from there, we're taken away from the presence of God. When Jesus died, all of that was exploded. We're told in the accounts of Jesus' death, that at the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the temple which hid the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And, and what happens is that now for the people of God, it's not that we gather to a particular place to experience the presence of God. Now the scriptures tell us we are living stones of the temple of God who are sent out into the world. We now carry the presence of God with us wherever we go. And so for Peter as a Jew, his Jewish history would have been it's all about being in the land of Israel. It's all about being in Jerusalem. It's all about being in the temple. Now he sees these believers scattered at the edge of empire and he says, you're chosen for exile. This is where you're going to experience blessing because you're carrying the blessing and the presence of God with you out into the world. And this, therefore, is a price worth paying. It's worth experiencing exile for. He says in verse 7, your faith is of greater worth than gold. So who's afeard? You've received something which is of greater worth than gold. They're facing challenges, but they're receiving this incredible reward. Now this is a letter for us as well, because although our circumstances are different from how they were in Asia and Bithynia 2,000 years ago, many of the things that we face Many of the challenges we face are similar, and the same reward is an offer to us, something that, that is of greater worth than gold. And that's why this letter is so relevant to us. So let's just think about what it means to have the reward of being chosen. Peter says, you're elect, you're chosen. He says, you're God's people. These people would have had a sense of identity. This is who we are. We're people of Asia. We're people of Bithynia. We're people of Pontus. We're workers, we're employees, we're employers, we're husbands, we're wives, this is who we are, but now they have a new and a greater identity as God's chosen people. Later on in the letter, Peter takes a deep dive into this, and we'll get into that later on, but here he tees this whole thing up. You are the people of God. God knows you, God's chosen you, God loves you. God wants you. This is good news. God knows you. God's chosen you. God wants you. And that's worth enduring the complexities of exile for. If 
God wants you, if God knows you, if God loves you, that's worth paying a price for. Of course, the question then is, how do you know if you've been chosen? Part of the answer is given in verse 8, where Peter says, though you have not seen him, though you've not seen Jesus, you love him. If there's any love in your heart towards Jesus, that's only there because Jesus himself is enabling you to love him. In ourselves, we don't turn towards God. In ourselves, we don't turn in love towards Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced any kind of love, you've experienced any kind of Peter-like enthusiasm for Jesus. The only reason that's happened is because God himself has stirred that desire in you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might say, well, how do I know? Am I one of the chosen? Is God choosing me? Does God want me? Does God love me? How would you know? Well, if you feel any sense of stirring in your heart, of affection, of love towards God, the reason that's happening, the reason that's beginning, the reason that seed is planted is because God is at work in you. God does love you. God does want you. God does choose you. And what Peter's doing here is describing a people who've been brought into this relationship with God. He's, he's from the Jewish people. These are people who knew what it was to be in covenant with God, to be in this relationship of promise with God. God had made promises to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. He had promised that they would know relationship with him. He had promised them blessing. He had promised them territory. Peter knew what it was to be in covenant with God through his ancestry, but now Peter is saying to these non-Jews that they have come into covenant with God. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. God has chosen them and the Spirit has transformed them. He sanctified them. This means that the Spirit of God has made these people holy in God's sight, righteous, welcomed. They have entered this covenant by obedience to Jesus, have accepted his claims, have trusted him, they've committed to him. You can do this this morning. You might never have done this before. This morning you can accept Jesus for who he is. You can believe his claims. You can be admitted into his presence, joined his people. This happens because he has shed his blood. When God made covenant with his people, blood was always shed. In Exodus 24, we read about how Moses, when the covenant was made with the people of Israel. Blood was sprinkled on the people. And for us in our context, our culture, that seems really weird. What's the thing about why is blood sprinkled? Why does Peter here say that these believers are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? What does blood do? Blood is a, it's a sign of sin being dealt with. It's a sign of how serious sin is, of how serious our rebellion against God is. Actually, the only way it can be dealt with is by death. That's what sin deserves. Sin deserves death. And when blood is shed, it's a sign that a death has happened, that the price has been paid, that the debt of sin has been paid. It's a sign then of being made clean. There's this blood on you. That shows actually you're not now covered by sin. That's not your definition. Actually, you're declared to be clean in the sight of God. It's then a sign of being welcomed. You're admitted because there's this mark on you, this seal upon you. And it also speaks to us of how we promise to obey. It's, that, it's a cross my heart and hope to die promise. Blood has been shed. I promise to obey. And Jesus is the once for all 
sacrifice. The reason this concept of the sprinkling of blood seems so weird to us is because there hasn't been animal sacrifice in the UK for centuries because Jesus is the one who made the ultimate, the final sacrifice. There's no more sacrifice needed. His blood has been shed, sprinkled on us, our sin dealt with, us made clean, us welcomed, and we promising to obey him. His blood seals the deal. And so when Peter says to these exiles, you've been chosen by God the Father, you've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, you've been called to be obedient to Jesus through sprinkling of his blood, what he's saying is you belong You're God's chosen covenant people, so rejoice in the privileges and security you have of being part of the people of God. Who's afeard? There's some stuff you're facing in your life. There's some sense of alienation you're experiencing in your culture. But who's afeard if you've been called as part of the people of God? God's choosing of you is not reluctance. God didn't look at these far-flung regions of Asia Minor and say, oh, I guess I'd better call a few people from Pontus and Bithynia just to make up the numbers. Don't really want them, but might as well. No, that's not how God acts towards us. God's choosing of us is not reluctant. It's deeply personal. One of the things... The great glories and mysteries of our faith is understanding that there's one God, but God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that right here in what Peter writes to these believers. You've been chosen by God the Father. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. All of God is involved in choosing his people. There's no reluctance on the part of God. He chooses us gladly, delightedly, lovingly, And so as we get into 2020, we need to also push into a deeper sense of God's love for us, his choosing of us. Such a gift. Push into the love of God. And the way that we do that is by experiencing grace and peace. This is how Peter finishes his greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, or grace and peace be multiplied to you. I think these words, grace and peace, they're perhaps the two most important words we can know. Peace is perhaps the most important word of the Old Testament. Peace, that beautiful Hebrew word shalom, is perhaps the most important word there is in the Old Testament because the fundamental human problem is a lack of peace. Peace was broken in Eden when our first ancestors rebelled against God. And what happened then was there was a breaking of peace. It disrupted the relationship between human beings and God. And it disrupted relationship between man and woman. It disrupted relationship between brother and brother. And broken peace is at the root of all our problems, our interpersonal relational problems are issues of peace. And our economic problems are issues of peace. Now, environmental problems are about broken peace. And God speaks into the mess of the broken peace of the world with a promise of peace. This word shalom, this greeting that the people of Israel would use to greet each other, but it speaks much more. It's much more than just a hello. It speaks about the restoration of all things, that all things will be made right. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, there's this word that comes, peace, peace, shalom, shalom. The world is messy and broken. Peace has been disrupted, but God is going to bring things back together again. Where there's broken relationships, the peace of God can come. Where there's broken economics, the peace of God can come. Where there's broken environments, the peace of God will come to restore all things. And so Peter speaks this blessing of peace over these believers and over us. 
experience peace. And then the word grace, which is perhaps the most important word in the New Testament, probably the most famous grace verse, is Ephesians 2, verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is knowing, experiencing, and living the love and acceptance of God. Grace is knowing the undeserved, unearned, but freely given favor of God. Experiencing grace means you have a complete confidence that you belong. You're part of God's people. He knows you. He wants you. He's chosen you. He loves you. And so Peter speaks a blessing of grace and peace over these believers, over these exiles. Let it be yours in abundance. Let it be multiplied to you. Let you would you know and experience and live your place in God as people have been chosen by him who experience his grace and know his peace. These believers were experiencing some alienation in the world where they lived, but their greater experience was to be the grace and the peace of God's people. Who's afeard? There's some challenges in your world. There's some challenges in your personal situations. But don't be afraid. Know the grace and the peace of God in abundance. You might be in exile, but you are eternally secure. God's chosen you. God wants you. God loves you. Something else which comes through again and again, and we'll see as we go through this letter, is that as exiles, we shouldn't get too comfortable here. If we're part of the people of God, it's okay to feel a bit uncomfortable in the world at times. We should anticipate some friction in the world. And when that happens, we shouldn't let that unnerve us. Don't be afeard. Who's afeard? Why? Because you've been chosen for this. What you've been chosen for is an abundance of grace and of peace. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for us here. Pray, Lord, for those of us who follow you, who have something of Peter's enthusiasm. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be more Peter-like, that we would be enthusiasts for Jesus. Lord, I pray even if we look a bit foolish at times and others mock us for it, I pray we wouldn't be ashamed of that. I pray that we would be the ones who jump out of the boat to get to you. I pray that we would be the ones who kind of leap into action to follow you and to make you known. Give us that enthusiasm for you, I pray, Jesus. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that there'll be that stirring of love for you in their hearts even now. There'll be that sense of, oh, maybe God is choosing me, reaching out to me. Maybe God does love me. Maybe God knows me. Maybe God wants me. I pray you do that in somebody's heart today, Jesus. There'll be that transfer from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven relationship in you. And I pray for us, Lord. I pray that we would know an abundance of grace and peace. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are not experiencing peace, who maybe are feeling anxious, fearful, maybe because of things in their own life or maybe things out in the world which seem scary. I pray that we would find peace in you. And I pray that we would bring peace into the situations in which you've put us. 
And Lord, we be known in abundance of grace. I pray for anybody here who's kind of striving still, trying to do it their own way, trying to earn their way into your good books. I pray there'd be a fresh awareness of this free gift of life and of salvation, of security. I, I, I pray for us, Lord, Lord, would you pour out on us today and this year, may we be a people who abound in the grace and the peace of God and who witness and display that to the world around us. If you want to experience life, if you want to experience peace, come and be with us. Ask that the world would see that. Help us, Lord. Help us in our day-to-day life. Help us in our workplaces. Help us in our relationships with others. Help us in our marriages. Help us, Lord, in our friendships. Help us to be people who know we, who we are as the chosen people of God and dwell in a place of grace and peace with you and with each other. In your name we ask it. Amen.